The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. David Montgomery. He is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington in the Department of Earth and Space Sciences. He is an internationally recognized geologist who studies landscape evolution and the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. He received his Ph.D. in geomorphology at the University of California, Berkeley. His books include Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Growing a Revolution. I heard him speak at the 35th Annual Beyond Pesticides Forum in Minneapolis, Minnesota last spring, and I knew I wanted to have him on the program. What makes him especially unique is that when he's not writing or doing geology, he plays guitar and piano in a band rightfully called Big Dirt. He lives in Seattle with his wife, Anne Bickley, who is a biologist and accents his work beautifully. Welcome, Dr. Montgomery. Thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I was so taken by your presentation at Beyond Pesticides because what you were able to do for the audience was connect the root life of plants to our gut health and the mechanisms by which we exchange nutrients and communicate. And I wanted to get into that presentation, but before we get there, I thought we'd lay a little background. And I wonder if you could tell me first, What is geomorphology? Yeah, well, you're not the first person to ask me that question. Um, Geomorphology is the study of how the surface of the Earth evolves. So 100 years ago, I might have been called a topographer or a physical geographer, someone who studies landforms. And so I'm a geologist by background who got into studying what shapes the surface of the Earth, You know, the part of the world that we live on and walk around on and everything we do is on and how that affects human societies and ecological systems increasingly came to captivate me over my career. So I was spending a lot of time sort of looking at how landscape affects other elements of things that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And you received a MacArthur Fellowship in 2008. What was that about? Well, it was an incredibly nice surprise. It's one of those awards that you don't know you're nominated for, and you get this cryptic phone call from people claiming to be the MacArthur Foundation wanting to give you a fellowship, which involves them giving you a fairly large grant that you can do whatever you want with with no reporting requirements. So they're meant to honor people that they deem to be particularly creative and that they try and then enhance and support your work. And I think that one of the reasons I got it was I started to try and write books aimed for non-academic audiences and to try and help communicate science beyond academia and out into the, the broader world, because there's so much about the way that scientists discover this world works that we need to get out into how we are living in it and how we're setting our policies and regulations and so forth up. And it was just one of the nicest surprises that's frankly ever happened to me. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that the information that scientists have very desperately needs to be translated for every one of us so that we can better understand the world and treat the earth a little bit kinder. 
And your first book, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but from this bio that I have from the MacArthur Fellowship, it says your first book was in King of Fish, The Thousand Year Run of Salmon. And you spoke about the history of humans' impact on salmon populations. It must be very depressing, really, when you go back and you look at the way the earth once was and the riches that it once offered man to see how we've wasted and eroded those resources over time. Well, yeah, it's fairly easy looking back through history and sort of cataloging environmental calamities that have been induced by human activity to get very depressed. And one of the things that my most recent book, Growing a Revolution, ended up doing is trying to look at the optimistic view of the future in terms of how to actually solve some of the problems in agriculture. We're still wrestling with the salmon problem out here in the Pacific Northwest, and the lessons that we could get from other regions, like I wrote about in King of Fish, really could be brought much more closely to bear on contemporary policy issues. But that basic problem of not learning from our past is something that spans a whole bunch of areas in which people interface with the environment, but for which we actually can turn things around should we choose to change our policies, change our practices, change the way that we interface with the natural world. We could actually have a much lighter footprint than we do today. Mm-hmm. But we do need those policies and incentives to drive those kinds of activities forward. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think people are really good at responding to incentives. Nobody likes to be told not to do something. Mm-hmm. And I just think back to you know myself as a teenager. I'm sure my parents would back me up in saying this. You know, the best way to get me to do something is to tell me not to do it. Um, right. But incentives were hardwired, I think, to really respond to favorably. And that's where, in terms of modern agriculture, what we need to do to really make it more sustainable is align the incentives for individual farmers for their year-to-year activities much more closely with society's long-term interest in building and sustaining the fertility of the land and, and its ability to keep feeding future generations. What do you think gets in the way of taking those positive steps? Boy, well, it's depends a bit on sort of which arena one's specifically talking about. But I think in general, habit is one of the big ones. Just the way we've done stuff tends to color the way we keep doing stuff. We're creatures of habit, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we can get locked into practices that aren't necessarily going to work over the long run, despite being fairly attractive over the short run. And then there's also incentives in terms of, if you look at agriculture, the way that we've set our subsidy systems up, the way that our crop advising and the information flow from universities and industry to farmers is working. It's often more about selling products to farmers than it is about empowering them to change their practices in ways that would allow them to use less of expensive products to grow just as much food. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we talk about those methods, by framing them as being modern and advancing versus, say, looking at some of the the ways we used to do things, not as being backward, but maybe as being time-tested. So how we think and speak about what we do, I think, is also important. I, I couldn't agree more. I totally believe that. And the stuff that I wrestle with in the new book is actually really quite aligned with that in the sense that what I think we need to do is, is take the sort of the best of ancient wisdom from farming practices that really informed the way people grew cover crops and rotated their crops and allowed livestock to manure fields in between cropping and combine that with some of the best of modern technology that allows us to do things like farm without plowing because of tillage, the basic act of plowing, 
is one of the most you know, destructive acts in farming. It can help release nutrients over the short term, but it degrades the fertility of the land over the long run. But if we take that modern science that allows us to have other ways to farm besides tillage and couple it with some of the ancient wisdom, we end up defining a new philosophy of farming around building and enhancing the beneficial life in the soil through minimizing disturbance, growing cover crops, and growing a more greater diversity of crops in the same fields, whether in between cash crops or as cash crops. Those three things flip the conventional wisdom of conventional agriculture on its head, because typically what we do today is use high tillage with intensive chemical use to grow monocultures. You flip those things all on their head to do minimal disturbance without tillage, growing cover crops and the diversity of crops, and you can really rebuild the fertility of soil in shockingly short order. And the key is merging that ancient wisdom and practices with modern technology. It's mm -hmm. not an either or. I'm so glad you brought up tillage because I think what that does is it ties the trilogy of books that you have together. And let me explain what I mean. So with tillage or not no-till, you hear about a lot of farmers being able to do no-till farming. And what made that possible, at least it's my understanding, is that we had these genetically engineered crops which were engineered to withstand the spraying of herbicides. And so the genetically engineered crops with the herbicide combination goes together with that no-till idea. And yet, in the hidden half of nature and the presentation that you gave in Minneapolis, you explain how the very chemicals that are being added to the soil in increasing numbers, I might add, are harming not only those critical microbes in the soil, but also the microbes in our gut. Yes, so one of the big, really major scientific advances of the last few decades has been this slow unfolding of the importance of the microbiome of both plants and our own microbiome in our gut, the way those microorganisms act as a community in ways that bolster and support the health of their host organism. And The Hidden Half of Nature was the book that my wife, Ann Buclay, and I wrote about that, which was very educational for us because she's a biologist that had studied salmon and other large charismatic organisms, and I'm a geologist. I'd studied rocks and landforms. Learning about the role of microbial life in the health of plants and in people was a real eye-opener to us. And so the way to really radically transform agriculture in ways that could really benefit human health would be to cultivate the beneficial organisms in the soil that allow crops to thrive with less herbicide and pesticide inputs and also produce healthy, nutritious food for us. One of the ironic things about the growing adoption of no-till agriculture in the last few decades in, in many areas of the world was that it really the door was opened to that by the introduction of glyphosate and herbicide-resistant crops, which made it very easy to give up the plow because one of the big reasons for plowing historically has been that it's really good weed control. But one of the things I explored in Growing a Revolution, the most recent book, was how farmers around the world are adopting practices that build soil health and use alternative ways of managing weeds, such as growing cover crops instead of spraying herbicides to keep the ground clean between their crop. They'll plant cover crops or crops in between their crop and then kill those crops with a crop roller or you know a mechanical device that crushes them and then allows them to rot rather than spraying them with an herbicide. And I was really impressed with how 
these farmers had built the fertility of their soil up enough such that they were using very little fertilizer, using very little herbicide, and using hardly any insecticides. And they were growing crops that were equal to or or with higher harvest than their more conventional neighbors. So by spending less on the chemical inputs and growing just as much food, they were able to be even more profitable, which is a reason for hoping that this style of more sort of organic-ish agriculture, this soil health-building agriculture, might really catch on. Yeah. You know, during the workshop that you gave at the Beyond Pesticide Forum, you showed a map of soil degradation. It was actually the United Nations Global Map of Soil Degradation, and you explained that 70% of our sustenance comes from the soil. And as a dietitian, you would think that I would have been taught that in my training. I'm hoping that the curricula is different today than it was 30, 35 years ago, but I think the understanding of soil and our dependence on keeping it well is so critical for our species and its sustainability. Oh, yeah, I agree very much. And when Ann and I were in grad school at Berkeley years ago, and we took a soil science class together, we weren't exposed very much to the role of microbial life in the soil as the great mediator that helped to get mineral elements out of the rocks and the soil particles and into plants so that they could be accessible to either us or the animals that we eat after they graze on those plants. And, you know, if we think about nutrition, there's a few key elements that get into the biological world from the atmosphere, the nitrogen, the carbon, almost everything else. And we need a lot of other mineral nutrients. Ultimately, they all come out of rocks. And if you look at the pace at which rocks break down, it's pretty slow. If you ever take a rock, go sit out in the street corner, wait for it to decay, you're going to be waiting a long time. Right. <laughs> but if you have mycorrhizal fungi in the soil and bacteria in the soil that can attack rocks and get those mineral elements out of them and start them into biological circulation, that's the way we need to think about the ultimate source of nutrition and how it cycles through the soil to our crops, to us, and then eventually back to the land. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. David Montgomery. He is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. I heard him speak at the 35th Annual Beyond Pesticides Forum in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in spring of 2017. And we are combining the trilogy of books that he has written, including Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, The Hidden Half of Nature, and third, Growing a Revolution. Well, let's talk about the miracle of these microbes. And I think that you had described this phenomenon that we're just realizing is in our world and in our guts, that it's really a revolution in thought and somewhat of a scientific revolution bridging agriculture and medicine. And I think that it really is the way forward in terms of how we treat the earth and how we keep ourselves well. Tell me a little bit about your path of discovery into this world. Well, it was a path that was very much Anne, my co-author on that book, and I walking down as we restored fertility to the land in our lot in urban Seattle. We basically took a lot that had pretty much dead dirt. There wasn't a single worm in it when we peeled the lawn off to try and plant a garden. And Anne's desire was to plant a garden. And 
over the course of restoring life to the soil, we saw the explosion of life above ground. We got very interested in the role of microbial life in processing decaying organic matter because we were composting and mulching the soil to try and improve it. And then Anne had her own very challenging and difficult health challenges during that process, which led us to look into the role of microbes in human health. And the recognition of the human microbiome was just starting to explode at that time. And we started looking into the role of microbial communities in both the root zone of plants, the the place called the rhizosphere, the zone around the roots, and in the human gut. And what we discovered in researching that and reading both the gastroenterology journals and the botany journals was this striking parallel in the roles that communities of microorganisms play in actually supporting the health of their hosts, whether it's a plant or whether it's a person. And you know, when we think about microbes, we usually think about them as germs. We've spent the last hundred years sort of villainizing microbes for very good reasons. There are pathogens that can really harm us, you know, the polio and cholera pathogens being sure. like really good examples of that. So we don't want to like romanticize all microbes are good for us, but what we've learned in the last few decades are that some of them really do things whereby their metabolites, what they produce from what they eat, turn out to be the raw materials that plants or our own bodies need to make some of the things that keep us healthy or provide the chemical signals that tee up our immune system or a plant's defense system. We're far more integrated and dependent on microbial life than we ever imagined 20, 30 years ago, which means it's a real revolution in the way that we see the microbial world. And there are communities that can act in our best interest if we cultivate their interests. It's an example of you know, a symbiosis, a mutually beneficial interaction. And we didn't used to look at microbes that way as in general. And we're now starting to see that we need to reevaluate and rethink some of our basic practices in agriculture and medicine to try and restore some of those connections and interactions that had been in our benefit that we've somewhat degraded through our contemporary practices. Mm -hmm. And you describe our 20th century diet and the fact that we've lost so much fiber content. So the idea of the importance of having a whole foods diet, basically a plant-based diet that gives the microbes in our colon the raw materials that those microbes need to produce beneficial compounds to protect our health. To me, that was a total revelation. And Anne was really the focal researcher on that part of the book. She opened my eyes to a lot of this. And my doctor had been telling me for years, you know, eat more fiber. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, I'm sure. I didn't really get it until we were researching this book and that point about the dietary fiber, that the hard-to-break-down plant matter that actually makes it all the way down to your colon where most of your microbiome lives and that and live off of degrading and digesting that plant matter that your body can't do by itself. We need the microbes to do that. It turns out what they're turning it into are compounds that our body takes up and that benefit us. The, the lining of your colon, for example, is nourished by butyrate, which is a um, short-chain fatty acid that's produced through the fermentation of fiber in your colon, and it's feeding your colon lining. If we don't eat enough fiber, we're not feeding you know, that key part of our own body what it needs to be healthy. And there's a lot of connections in terms of the way that changes in our microbiome that can be related to diet, as well as other practices like overuse of antibiotics, have influenced our own health and that are really starting to help us unlock 
what's happened to all these chronic diseases that are increasingly plaguing humanity in the, in the 21st century? Right, and I am going to provide a link with this program to your excellent presentation at the forum so that our listeners can go online and look at some of the slides. And I think that your images help really visualize this story to make it more understandable. But I wonder if we can talk a little bit about getting back to the use of pesticides in our environment. And this is an area that I'm truly fascinated with because I think, okay, we're affecting the microbes in the soil. I wonder how much research has been done on the connection between killing off the microbes that we still don't understand really how many there are and what their different functions are, but we're killing them off. And then ultimately how that affects the nutrient content of a plant that we consume and our own health at the end of the day. Yeah, there's been some research that's looked at various pieces of that. And what Anne and I have come to sort of call crops that are overfed on a diet of fertilizers that gives them the major elements that they need that they kind of get lazy. They stop putting out the sugary exudates that they push out of their roots normally to feed the microbes in the soil. And these plants are actively feeding the microbial communities that then benefit them. And they get lazy when they get fed their full complement of major elements, which means that the micronutrients, the minor elements, the mineral elements that we need for health, that plants need for their health, don't come into plants so much. And there's some concern and some studies that point to connections with the use of some herbicides, for example, that will chelate or lock up some of those metals in the soil so they're not available to the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that Ann and I are actually starting to work on a, a new book project now, looking at the relation between soil health and human health, where we plan to go a lot more into the issues that you're asking about now, because we think that there's a lot that needs to be pulled together from what we do know and synthesized into a readily digestible form. Some of the research papers that we read when we were researching the hidden half of nature, for example, they're almost impossible to read unless you're in the priesthood of that particular (laughs) subdiscipline. We had to sort of learn how to read those journal articles, at which point all these incredible connections really were opened up to us. Right. Part of our job is to translate. You know, and I think that that's the beauty of your work, the fact that my field is human nutrition, your field is geomorphology, and we're having this combination about how our disciplines are connected. And I think the more we cross-pollinate with other scientists, we can better see the big puzzle that is our food system and greater planet. So I really appreciate having this conversation with you. I would like to jump into your latest book, Growing a Revolution, because I do want to leave our listeners with a message of optimism. Yes, we have eroded quite a bit of our soil. We have been feeding it with synthetic chemical fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides. But we want to turn that around, and I think the younger generation is very much interested in doing this. So what are some of the things that we can get behind to rectify the situation and promote healthy soil again? Well, you know, there's a burgeoning movement around the idea of a regenerative agriculture, an agriculture that can build the fertility of the soil even as we use it for intensive farming. And that's really the kind of the style of agriculture that I looked into for research and growing a revolution because we took these ideas and revelations about the, the importance of microbial life in the soil. 
to the health of crops and garden plants that, we, that Ann and I realized at our own home. And I went around the world to try and ask farmers who had been rebuilding fertility to their soil the question of, well, how did you do it? What were the practices that worked? And then to try and look at, well, what are the general principles that unify success in different areas and in, on small subsistence farms in Africa, large commodity farms in the U.S., coffee plantations in Central America. And it really boiled down to three things, that minimal disturbance of the soil, keeping the ground covered with cover crops, and growing a diversity of crops. And the reason those three things, I think, work so well in combination is that's a recipe for feeding the beneficial life in the soil, for feeding the mycorrhizal fungi and the bacteria that can really partner with plants to bring the plant's nutrition from the world of geology in exchange for the plant's ability to capture sunlight and turn carbon dioxide and water into sugars and in turn use that to feed the fungi and the bacteria. And when we think about farming through that lens, it's a more of a biological lens than the chemistry and physics lens that we've tended to look at it for the last 80 to 100 years, it makes you think differently about basic practices. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to rethink just our basic style of agriculture. And that's the idea of the title of the book of Growing a Revolution is to, to really build soil health building practices as the foundation for another agricultural revolution, one that would merge the ancient wisdom of ancient practices with our ability in, in modern science. And I think that younger farmers will probably be more receptive to these ideas, perhaps, than people who may have been doing it longer. But I've been really impressed with the farming communities I've visited, how widespread some of the interest and the, and the growth in interest in these ideas are because farmers are close to the land. They know the land. They've seen the degradation and destruction of soils. And these practices, when they're all practiced together, can really turn that around. Mm -hmm. Do you have a title for your new book yet? Oh, we are totally open to suggestions if someone has a great title for it. <laughs> all right. We'll put a link to your website so that our <laughs> listeners can be in touch with you. Our time is coming to a close, but I wanted to give you the last word. Give us a charge if you'd like. Well, you know, I think that it's time that we really need to think differently about soil. It's something that most of us take for granted, uh, yet it is the very foundation, the living foundation of civilization. And Anne and I view it as the biggest natural infrastructure project that humanity faces, is how to rebuild the fertility of our soil to restore life to the land. And this is something that people can do on their own lot. You can do it in a window box with a little garden or you can do it on a huge farm that can produce a lot of food to feed a lot of people. We need to basically rethink our relationship with the land and soil. And I'm really happy to say, after writing Growing a Revolution, that I think it's not only feasible, but there are people out there who are doing it. It's not a theory. This can be done because people are, in fact, doing it. And if people are interested in more on that or the books, and I have a website, it's at dig2grow.com, dig the number two, grow, and Obviously, we recommend the books uh, as a way to get into that. Check them out from the library, buy them. What, however, the whole idea is to spread ideas. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing the information and all of your insights that you've gleaned in your career. I want to thank, of course, our listeners for joining us. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to especially thank my guest, Dr. David Montgomery, MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. We will be sure to provide a link not only to your talk, 
in Minneapolis, but also provide a link to digtogrow.com where you can see Anne's beautiful garden and the evolution of depleted to rich, nourishing soil. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda.